Welcome to the Do Good to Lead Well podcast. If you're passionate about mastering self-leadership, then you're in the right place. I have always been curious about and fascinated by the pursuit of leadership excellence. This is why I pursued my PhD in psychology with a specialization in business, and I've continued to dedicate my career to understanding the science and practice of positive leadership. My name is Craig Dowden. I'm a best-selling author, award-winning keynote speaker, executive coach, and member of the Forbes Coaches Council. Each week, I'll bring you world-class content on the science and practice of positive leadership. Through my conversations with best-selling authors, TED speakers, and top CEOs, you'll be able to leverage their insights and experience so you can maximize your potential and be the leader the world needs you to be. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Do Good to Lead Well Through Crisis VIP webinar series. My name is Craig Dowden, and for those of you who are signed on and saw us the background and us chatting, uh, I'm really excited about having this conversation this afternoon. It's one that uh, I've been looking forward to for quite some time, and I know everybody who's joined us is going to get so much out of it. Um, Bryce is just such a thought-provoking and, and really thoughtful uh, expert in terms of decision making and how we approach things individually and collectively. So for those of you who have been here and joined me before, welcome back. Absolutely awesome to see you again. And and for those of you who this may be your first time out for the Do Good to Lead Well Through Crisis webinar series, uh, a warm welcome to you. As I mentioned, my name is Craig Dowden. I'm an executive coach and keynote speaker around positive leadership. And my mantra is to bridge the gap between what science knows and what leaders do. And this webinar series was, was formed before the release of my first book, Do Good to Lead Well, The Science and Practice of Positive Leadership. And I have the profound privilege to speak with top CEOs, business leaders, thought leaders, best-selling authors, TED speakers like Bryce on a regular basis. And when COVID hit a couple of years ago, I decided to uh, shift the focus of the webinar and add it through crisis. And over the last couple of years, have interviewed over 70 CEOs, best-selling authors, and TED speakers to get them to share their expertise and insights so that we can uh, approach our personal and professional lives better equipped uh, to handle the different challenges and opportunities we face. And I, as I shared, I'm really, really excited about this conversation today uh, where we're going to be and I'm going to be speaking with Bryce, Bryce Hoffman. He's a best-selling author, uh, a speaker, and an unconsultant. So we're going to unpack that right away, uh, who believes that individuals have the power to transform companies and cultures through great leadership and applied critical thinking. And for, as you're about to experience, just he lives that in the most authentic of ways. He's the author of American Icon, Alan Mulally and the Fight to Save Ford Motor Company, which was named one of the best business books by Bloomberg. And Red Teaming, How Your Business Can Con Conquer the Competition by Challenging Everything, which best-selling business author John Gordon called Further Proof, and I quote, that Bryce Hoffman is one of the great business writers and thinkers of our time. He's president of Red Team Thinking, so he now teaches individuals and organizations around the world 
how to use this same approach to strengthen their plans, stress test strategies, identify missed opportunities, and expose hidden threats in order to help them become one of the disruptors rather than one of the disrupted. So I absolutely love that. So without further ado, Bryce, a warm, warm welcome to the program this afternoon. Really appreciate you take time out of your extraordinarily hectic schedule to, to share your wisdom with us. Oh, I'm so happy to be here, Craig. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, uh, and, and just for those of you who have joined, uh, Bryce has kindly agreed to take questions. So please use the chat uh, to speak. You, you've got one of the, the leading experts uh, in the world right now. So please take full advantage to ask him anything that's top of mind for you. And I have to share, I, I hinted at this, I planted the seed earlier. I love that you call yourself an unconsultant. So can you please share what an unconsultant means? Absolutely, Craig. Well, you know, and, and no offense to 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 consultants, uh, but you know, I was I was a journalist, a business journalist for 20 years before I became an unconsultant. And uh, after my first book came out, American Icon, a lot of executives, a lot of CEOs read it and and were really inspired by Alan Mulally's, uh, as you know, excellent leadership methodology and 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 management culture, and and so they asked me to come and, and, and speak to their organizations. And then those speeches led to them asking me to come and teach them how to implement some of the ideas in the book. And so I quit my job as a journalist and started doing that. And when I got into companies, Craig, first thing I noticed in, in every big corporation that I went to, on the, on the top floor, when I'd be coming and going out of the, the CEO's office, I'd notice a lot of young people in their in their 20s and in, in shiny suits and 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 uh, with brand new laptops walking around, uh, looking very important. And I I would say, who are these people? And people would in a hushed tone say, Well, these are the consultants. You know, these are from McKinsey. These are from Deloitte. These are from fill in the blank. And I'd say, What are they doing here? And they said, oh, well, they're, they're, they're helping us, they're developing strategy for us. And I said to myself, well, that's, that's interesting because don't you have like more than 300 people on your org chart who have the word strategy in their title? And, and I asked, ultimately, it took me a while to get up the courage, but I finally asked the question of one of the CEOs I was working with. I said, and, and he said, yeah. And I said, well, why are you, what are they doing here then? Mm. And he said, well, they're developing strategy for us. I said, well, then something's wrong with this picture. Either you've hired 300 people who don't know what they're doing, or you don't trust your own people enough to let them do what you hired them for, which is it? And the CEO I asked that uh, was, was pretty quiet. And so that's why I said to myself, I am never gonna call myself a consultant because what I do, and what my company does is we never tell people how to do things. We never tell people, here's the answer to your problem. Here is the strategy you should follow. What we do is we train people in tools and techniques so that they can get those answers themselves because they have the answers. This is something I learned from Alan. Right. Is, is uh, 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 every organization, and I've seen this across the world, every organization I've ever been into, answers that it needs reside within that organization. It's just need good leaders to come and 
unearth them and, and allow them to be surfaced. So that's why I don't call myself a consultant. That's why I call myself an unconsultant. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And what I love about uh, that the label and more importantly, your approach, Bryce, and I'm really excited we get to talk about it today, um, is that it's really around creating a safe space to 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 hear that input and to de and and knowing you and how you approach things for you, it's just hey, let me know anything and 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 I'm happy to hear it and I'll listen to it intently and and understand the perspective. And it's through questions and I love that as well because for me it's kind of and I just it's there are parallels in my own in my own professional life as a coach where it's like you have the answers within asking questions drives that insight so i think it's just such an amazingly powerful uh a powerful approach but can you share your origin story of of red team thinking because i think it's just such a wonderful it's really fascinating it's cool i don't want to share i know some details about you i just think it's absolutely powerful in terms of how it's informed your approach sure uh, so, you know, as I mentioned, I was working, I was helping companies to understand Alan's management uh, system, his BPR process and, and his and, and how he turned around first Boeing and then Ford. And one of the things I learned from Alan is that, you know, continuous improvement. You have to always be looking, as he likes to say, you know, always be working on the better plan. And so I'm always working on the better plan for myself. And as I was doing this, I was thinking, this is really powerful, but it's not its not the whole puzzle. Something is missing here. And when I thought about it, what I realized was missing was Alan. And, I, and when I say Alan, I don't mean this amazing, charismatic, energetic leader, which, which is hard to duplicate. I, but I meant that Alan, and you've had the, the privilege of working with him, so you'll know what I'm talking about. Alan is what I call a constructive contrarian. Mm. He's always asking why. He's always asking questions in a constructive and collegial way, but in a serious way. Mm. And the best example that I can think of about that is uh, when he first took over Ford, didn't know anything about the automobile industry, didn't know much about Ford other than what he and his family had, had researched uh, in, in the few weeks uh, before he started as CEO. And so his first week on the job, he asked to, to see all the cars and trucks that Ford made. He wanted to see the whole lineup. And so the, the designers and the engineers assembled every vehicle that Ford sold everywhere in the world and a big showroom that they have at, at, at their headquarters. And they brought Alan down and he walked in and he looked around he said, wow, this is really impressive. Where's the Taurus? And this was this was in 2000, uh, this was at the, in, in, at the end of 2006, fall of 2006. And they said, oh, well, sir, you know, we just, we just discontinued the Taurus in spring of this year, a few months ago. And he said, well, I, I thought that the, the Taurus had been the best-selling American car. It had been the best-selling car in America for years. It was the car that that, that, that reclaimed that title from the Japanese. Why did you stop making it? And he said, oh, well, you're right, sir, but you know, it became kind of long in tooth and we weren't investing in it. Why did you stop investing in it when it was the best-selling car in America? And, and, and one, of the, one of the senior engineers, senior product guys who was in that group standing around, Alan told me, he said, 
that conversation became one of the most real conversations I'd ever had in my career in about, in about 30 seconds, just by him asking those questions. And, and it led to, you know, a, a, a real epiphany, which is that, you know, by within five minutes, the engineering and design team were telling Alan, well, you know, you're right, sir. We have a tendency we have for decades of, 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 of failing to keep investing in our top products and moving on to other things. And he said, well, we better stop doing that. Right. <laughs> and, and so yeah. my, my, my point is, is that that was so powerful. And I, and I started thinking there's gotta be a way to teach people to think like that, to think in that constructive contrarian way. And I started doing some research and I discovered that there was, that the, in fact, the army of all people had developed a school to teach senior military leaders how to think like that. And, um, and they called it red teaming. And uh, I heard about it, I called it the Pentagon and said, hey, I've heard about this amazing school. Can I audit the course? And they said, who the hell do you think you are? And I said, well, I'm a best-selling author and a really nice guy. And they said, as we said, who the hell do you think you are? Well, who I am, Craig, is very, very persistent. And it right. took about six months, but I finally uh, got permission to become the first and only, it turned out, uh, civilian from outside government to go to the U.S. Army's Red Team Leader course and graduate from it. Um, spent the first half of 2015 in beautiful Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, um, and uh, and then uh, took those ideas and started to figure out how to port them to business. And then in 2017, wrote my second book, Red Teaming, that you, that you mentioned, and also launched my company, Red Team Thinking, to teach individuals and organizations how to use these tools and techniques to make better decisions faster in their complex world that we all live in today. Well, and I love that. And one point that I want to bring particular attention to, I love the comment of constructive contrarian, because I think a lot of times we see contrarian as difficult and slowing it down and just an annoyance or they're being aggressive. And I absolutely it's a brilliant description of Alan and a brilliant description of the approach because it's hey, I'm just asking. I just want to understand. I just, and and I love that in terms of how it, how it triggers, as you say, a real conversation. And it really gets us that, to the heart of the matter much more quickly. So absolutely love that. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, and, and great leaders have always known this. You know, there's a famous tool that was developed by Toyota. In fact, it was developed by Toyota with a D, T-O-Y-O-D-A, not T-O-Y-O-T-A, because the family's name is Toyota. And, mm -hmm. and uh, Sichiro Toyota, when, before he even started making automobiles, when Toyota was, at, was making industrial looms back in, in the, uh, the, the late 1920s, came up with something called the five whys. Mm -hmm. and, and people may have heard about this because it's taught as part of Six Sigma now. And it's so simple and it's so powerful and it simply works like this. Whenever you want to understand the root cause of any problem, ask why five times and you'll get to it. And it's something that every child knows, right? And, and so, you know, you think about what Alan did mm -hmm. 
in that conversation was to apply, and I know that he's a student of Toyota's production system and of the five wise principles, it was to apply that. Um, there's also another great example that someone shared with me of, of how Jeff Bezos used that, who's also a big believer in this. He was on a tour of one of Amazon's uh, warehouses several years ago um, and heard that, that a worker had just been injured and he stopped the tour, you know, he was just there for something else, but he said, well, let's, well, let's, let's figure out what happened here. And he said, why was this worker, why did this worker get injured? And they said, well, they, 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 they had their backpack on the, next to the, the, the conveyor belt and it got sucked in and they grabbed their backpack and it grabbed them, you know, their hand and stuff like that. And he said, well, why did they have their backpack? That's one why there. So why did they have their backpack on the conveyor belt? Well, because there's no other place for them to put it. Why is there no other place for them to put it? Why don't we provide a little shelf for at each workstation for people to put? They got to put their stuff somewhere. Mm. So you didn't even have to get to five whys. He solved the problem, you okay. know, and it's that simple. But but the problem, Craig, is that, is that most of the time we go through life, we don't ask the questions. Yeah. That's the problem. Absolutely. And I'm excited. Well, we've already got a question from Dave. Uh, so who also loves the label uh, constructive contrary. And, and so Dave's wondering what gets in the way, like how come we don't have more constructive contrarians? Like what's. Oh, that's such a great that? question, Dave. <laughs> uh, I was recording a podcast yesterday and I got asked the exact same question by the host um, because we were talking about Dave, you know, we all have this in us when we're kids, right? You know, we go, we're always asking why. You know, we don't ask why five times, we ask why 50 times. And in fact, when I was writing Red Teaming and I, I sent the chapter to my uh, to my my uh, publisher that included the five whys tool, and he says, oh, I, had, I my son knows this tool and he's five years old because he, he uses it every day. And uh, so what happens is that, first of all, we don't get taught we don't get encouraged to continue to do this the way that we used to do. Um, back, you know, a while ago, more than a decade, two decades ago, schools did a better job, at least in, in, in the West, schools did a better job of teaching applied critical thinking, teaching people how to use critical thinking skills. So that's kind of stopped. But what really stops it, Dave, is the fact that when we get older and get jobs and go to work, we find ourselves under tremendous political pressure, internal politics I'm talking about, to go along to get along, to not rock the boat, to not be the squeaky wheel. And we find that asking why can sometimes be career limiting. And so we stop. And, and, and it's unfortunate because, because when we stop, we stop providing the value that we could have provided to the company, to the organization we're working with. So the key and, and a big part of what we teach at Red Team Thinking is how to keep asking these tough questions in a collegial and constructive way, in a politically aware way, so that you can do this without it being career limiting and make it something that's actually career advancing. Love it. And uh, yeah, and, and this is why I so enjoy these conversations because Trudy just wrote into the into the chat said, uh, what ha can happen is, is that we're labeled as disturbers. Yep. <laughs> and so it can really have a, a negative effect. So um, I, I'd love to hear, 
Can you share with us, uh, because I know a lot of people are excited to learn what red team thinking is and, and what it's not. So can you let us start to unpack what this is all about as a methodology? Absolutely. So red team thinking is a cognitive capability that engages critical thinking, that enables distributed decision-making, which is something really important for organizations today, and encourages diversity of thought, which is another thing that's really important because today we have a lot of organizations that go to great lengths to create the image of diversity, but then they don't listen to the people that they brought in or give them a voice. So they're not getting diversity of thought, which is the real value of diversity. So those are the three things that red team thinking enables. And all of these things together help individuals and organizations make better decisions faster in this volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, hyper-connected world we live in. The other thing that this does, well, not the other thing, but the thing that, that using these tools and techniques do is create what we call the red team thinking mindset, which is not it, it, it's it's one thing to use the tools and techniques which is very powerful but to use them consistently starts to train your brain and train the organization to be a a, a constructive innovative self-challenging in a constructive way organization that therefore as you said is able to be one of the disruptors rather than being one of the disrupted and and we really strive to to create what we call the three c's which is clarity, capability, and culture. So clarity gets to a, a real important thing. And I'm just, I, I, there's, there's no polite way to say this, Craig. Every organization in the world creates a fog of BS around itself, consciously or unconsciously. Often it's unconsciously. And there are, every organization has its own mythology, its own lies that it tells itself. And often, these lies are told because the truth hurts or the truth is too difficult or no one wants to deal with the truth. And so we seek refuge in comforting lies rather than, than tackling these hard truths. But the problem is, is the way you move forward as an individual, as an organization is tackling these hard truths. So the first thing we do is provide clarity with this. Clarity also gives you alignment because if people aren't clear, on what we're what we're doing, where we're going, then they're going to be going in different directions, or everyone's going to be in their silo. So clarity is the first thing. But if you have clarity alone, that doesn't get you where you need to go. So you need capability. So the tools are designed to give you the capability to make good strategic choices. And then all of this used consistently starts to change the culture of the organization. That's ultimately what this is about: is to make an organization that is resilient that is agile with a lowercase a, able to rapidly adapt to changing circumstances, that is innovative, and that is disruptive. I love that, and I think it's so, I'm, I love the fog of BS. I got a bunch of comments around that, but amen. It's true, uh, you know, yeah, every organization does yeah. There's not a single, including my organization. We constantly sure. are, are red teaming ourselves because we create our own mythology too. Right. Well, and what I love is that you're a passionate advocate for seeking the truth. Uh, so I 100%. Think, uh, I think that's really cool. 
and and doing it in a very curious place of curiosity as opposed to judgment because i think that's essential and i love that that's a part of the methodology um uh, michelle has a question love that you talked about the the mythology that organizations have can you share some of the most common that you've seen maybe one or two of the most common traps that that organizations have big lies absolutely michelle you know there there's often a a belief in organizations this is the most dangerous one i'll, I'll say michelle is there's a belief that we've we've cracked the code we figured it out. We, there's there there's there's no better way to do this than we've done it, and and this is how successful organizations fail, is because they believe that they've got all the answers, that they've figured it out. They just need to keep doing what they've always done, and they'll continue to be successful. But go read the book Good to Great, and see how many of those companies are still great. But better yet, see how many of those companies that were labeled great are still in business. And the reason that they're not in business, the ones that failed since that book was written, wasn't because they weren't great back then. It's because they took their greatness for granted and they told themselves that they couldn't fail as a result. I saw this all the time when I used to be a journalist and covered the automobile industry. I remember, you know, General Motors was infamous for this. Uh, I once had a conversation, this was when, when they were working on the Chevy Volt, their first electric vehicle. And, uh, their, their first hybrid. And I remember uh, talking with the president of the company that was going to produce the battery for the Volt. And at the time, GM was saying the Volt's going to be out in 18 months. And he told me confidentially over dinner that the battery wasn't going to be ready for almost two years. And, and so I, I, I went to, to senior executive at GM and I said, you know, when's the Volt going to be out? He said, oh, it'll be out in 18 months. And I said, well, that's really interesting because the folks who are making your battery say the battery is not going to be ready in 18 months. So what are you going to put in the car? And, 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 and not, not spitting me as a journalist or anything like this, with total sincerity and belief, he leaned across the table and said, Bryce, we're General Motors. It will be out in 18 months. It was out 36 months later. <laughs> But he really believed that. And that's where right. the whole too big to fail thing comes from, all that sort of thing. But there's, you know, it's different for every every organization. You know, there, there's, uh, you know, I'll give you another example. Uh, one, one, a big company that we've worked with, parent, one of their perennial strategic challenges is trying to put, trying to, trying to uh, defeat a competitor that's smaller than them, but, but makes their life really difficult. And one day I, I asked the question, I said, why is this so important to you? And they said, oh, because this is, you know, they're, they're constantly, you know, we have to fight for market share. They're constantly going after us with this stuff. And I said, well, so would, would, would putting them out of business solve your problem? They're like, absolutely. It, it would be priceless for us. I said, well, that's great because you have more than enough money in the bank right now to buy them. You could buy them at their current market cap and still have just under half your cash reserves left. And they said, oh, but we can't do that because it would erode our earnings per share and institutional investors wouldn't, wouldn't go for it. I said, well, then you need to, you know, you need to be honest with yourself. If this is the boogeyman that you think it is, 
you have you instead of trying to come up with all these elaborate plans to defeat them just buy them if it's that big of a, a challenge and if it's if it's not worth doing it, that then then stop spinning your wheels on this because it's 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 not working i told this story to alan by the way um because you know they said we can't do that because wall street will never go along with it and and alan alan made the point to me that that's one of the biggest jobs a ceo has is to tell the company's story to wall street and so he did that as you probably know craig when, when he was ceo of ford he decided to they decided to to convert the f-150 pickup to all aluminum construction this is a breakthrough this is an amazing thing making them lighter more fuel efficient first automaker to do this the problem is you can't make an aluminum pickup with the same tools on the same assembly line that you made a steel pickup so the only way they could do this was to shut down their pickup factory for almost a year and retool it completely to make aluminum pickups and people said no we can't we can't this is our best-selling product we can never do this wall street will, will slaughter us because our sales will plummet and alan said yeah well our, our sales will plummet but we just have to tell them the story and he got on the plane he flew to, to new york and he went to each of the big banks and and, and investment houses and he said look here's what we're going to do it's going to hurt it's going to our sales are going to tank for the better part of a year we're going to do our best to build up inventories beforehand but there's only so much we can do but you know, you need to see the long-term picture here. Mm -hmm. This is gonna make us a greener automaker. It's gonna make us a market leader in fuel efficiency. And it worked. Yeah, their stock price went down a bit, you know, when their sales tanked, but they, but but the the big the big investors understood and they and they didn't panic and they didn't pull out of Ford or slaughter Ford or criticize Ford. They praised Ford for its forward thinking. That's rare today, though, right. because most companies make decisions on what's good for the next quarter rather than what's good for the next 25 years. So that's another lie we tell ourselves is that we can't do these things, but we can, we just have to, we just have to, 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 to cowboy or cowgirl up and do it. <laughs> yeah. Have the imagination to think about what if, or how could we, uh, and I love your point too, because I think it's so powerful for everybody on this uh, webinar today to reflect on in terms of that, the power of story. And I love, you know, as you were saying with Alan's experience and journey about almost being the chief story officer and how important that is in terms of engaging people. And, okay, well, if you go out and pitch this without the broader context, well, you can lose people very, very quickly. One of the questions I wanted to ask you about, because I, I, as you talked about, this is really a system, it's an approach, it's a skill, and, and it's based in cognitive psychology and a lot of different biases that we have. So can you share a little bit about some of the biases that get in the way of making high quality decisions, the ones that you see most commonly and, and, and what impact that has? So we can raise awareness around our own biases and how they could be operating? Absolutely, Craig. Well, the first thing I'll, I'll say to folks who are listening is if you haven't read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, you get a copy and read it right away. Download it tonight. It will change your life. You know, Daniel Kahneman, won the Nobel Prize for his work in this area. But he and a lot of other cognitive psychologists have been working for the past several decades to understand how we make decisions. You know, it was believed for a long time, ever since Adam Smith said this, you know, back in the 1700s, that human beings are fundamentally rational creatures and that we make the best decisions that we possibly can make. And if we make a bad decision, it's because of one of two things. It's either because we 
we don't have enough information or we have bad information or because we're swayed, distracted by strong emotions, like an obsession with NFTs, for instance. And so the solution, therefore, to making better decisions is simply to get more and better information, right? But the problem, as you know, Craig, because you, you, we were just doing working on this yesterday, is that Kahneman and other psychologists have proven in thousands and thousands of experiments, that's how we wish we made decisions. And that in fact, our decision-making, no matter how smart we are, no matter how well-educated we are, no matter how successful we are, is skewed in ways that we're not aware of by a dizzying array of cognitive biases and heuristics, which is just a fancy word for, for mental shortcuts. So some of the ones that, that I think are really important, well, one that's really important right now, obviously in the world, is normalcy bias. So normalcy bias refers to the fact that, and it is, it's been proven in, in, in a number of experiments, about 70% of people in any given crisis suffer from normalcy bias. Normalcy bias refers to the fact that, that most people, when faced with a, a crisis or a catastrophe, have, are unable to, are, are actually physically or mentally unable to see how bad the situation could get and therefore fail to take the steps that are necessary to respond effectively to the situation. And I think if you look around the world for the past two years, you see government after government falling victim to normalcy bias, failing to understand as soon as the pandemic began, how serious and far reaching it could be. I wrote a piece for Forbes back in February of 2020, before it was even called a pandemic saying, this is going to change everything for your business. If you think this is something that you are going to, to, to have to just get through over the next few weeks, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. This is going to disrupt global supply chains. This is going to change markets. It's going to, to, to have huge economic consequences. It's going to touch every aspect of your business. And if you don't start planning for it and adapting right now, you're going to be in serious trouble. I was able to do that, not because I have a crystal ball or, 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 I'm, a, or I'm a psychic or anything like that, it, but, but because I look at things using these red team thinking tools through the question of, you know, what, what taking a sober look and say, what really is the situation and what is it likely to end up being? And unfortunately, a lot of very smart business leaders failed to do that. And they were, and, 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 and some of them went out of business as a result of it. So normalcy bias is one. Um, let me let me share another one that, that, that is illustrative in a different way. Um, optimism bias. So optimism bias refers to the fact that most of us, pretty much all of us at some level, tend to exaggerate our abilities, minimize our shortcomings. And, and the final thing is really important, exaggerate our ability to predict the future accurately. And so, in, in, in a way that skews towards the positive, as we just talked about. So normalcy bias can be a real dangerous thing because you know you think you you think you can fly and jump off the building and find out you can't. That's a bad outcome. But here's the thing about normalcy bias. Kahneman calls normalcy bias the engine of capitalism. Mm. The engine of capitalism, because if we didn't suffer from normalcy bias, nobody would ever invent anything. Nobody would ever open a new restaurant because people would look at the data and they look at the facts and find out that in the United States, nine out of 10 restaurants fail in the first two years. So why would you even think about opening a new restaurant? 
you know, and we'd still be eating, you know, whatever they served in the 1950s, you know, today, if, if, if people didn't suffer from optimism bias and, and took the risk to try something different and, and change the world in the process. You know, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, you know, would never have created, you know, the personal computer because why would you create a personal computer? No, there's no need for it. And, mm. and so there's value in these things, but the problem Craig comes in not recognizing that they're there, that they're impacting our thinking. And so a big part of red team thinking is helping us to identify what biases are we, are we, are influencing our decision and how can, are, are they influencing in a good way or a bad way? And how can we, how can we modulate or mitigate them? Awesome. And I love that. And I think, and again, I just, I, I love speaking with you and having this conversation and, uh, and, and one of the things that I, uh, I really appreciate, Bryce, is that it's, hey, we got to be aware of these things, like not be afraid of them, acknowledge them. They are there. And let's recognize the impact that they could have on us and on either side of the ledger. And so that we don't, again, potentially fall victim to these these biases. I've got so many comments about this is awesome, so interesting, very thought provoking. And people have asked, I won't be able to get through various names. It's like, can you share a couple of examples of red team thinking techniques I'd love to learn about? Yeah. So yeah. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll, I'll share a simple one. That, that one of the most simple but very powerful is uh, we call six strategic questions. And it's a tool that we developed with one of our with one of our, our, our instructors who was actually a classmate of mine when I went to the red teaming school at, at Fort Leavenworth. And uh, he's a, a uh, former Delta Force commander. And it's based on a, a tool that Delta Force uses called Six Strategic Questions. And it's something that you can use very easily when you, at any, you know, when you're, when you're looking at a plan, a strategy, a decision, you can even use it for ideation, um, which is a little bit different. But um, the way it works is like this, is, is you simply ask a series of questions that are very simple questions, but very powerful. So the first question, I won't go through all of them, but the, the first question is, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Now that seems like an incredibly simple question, right? But here's the problem. <laughs> Most people never ask it. So, you know, we we were working, I, I know you heard heard the story recently, Craig, but we were working with one of the big banks in the UK. My colleague, Marcus Dimbleby, um, was helping them review this global strategy that they were gonna roll out to tens of thousands of employees. In, in a few weeks, and they were they they brought us in to help them vet it before they they rolled it out. And again, help them. We don't do the vetting because this is our motto. <laughs> don't outsource thinking. You can read backwards. Um, to help them vet it, and so we had a group of of their senior leaders in the room, seven or eight senior executives, business unit leaders, and we said. Let's use this, we're gonna use this tool, six strategic questions. So what is the problem this plan is trying to solve? And how many answers do you think we got with seven executives in the room? I know you know the answer, Craig. People can put it in chat. I wanna put it put in chat how many, how many questions you think, and how many answers you think we got? Uh, there are some three, two, Oh, you guys five. are so optimistic. Seven different answers. Seven different answers on what this strategy was, was the problem this strategy was trying to solve. And so, you know, what we said was, 
folks, there's no point in going any further with this and diving deeper into analyzing it because you don't even know what you're doing here. You, if you think, so think about what's going to happen when you roll this strategy out. Each of you are going to introduce this to your business unit. And you're going to say, we're doing this because we need to do X. And X is going to mean seven, one of seven different things. You're going to create complete chaos in your organization, complete lack of alignment. And I would wager that of these seven answers, not all of them are right. Not all of these are problems we need to solve. So before we analyze the plan, let's figure out what the problem we're trying to solve is. So it's a simple question and it doesn't take any, you know, any amount of time to do that, but it's incredibly powerful. And then we go through five other questions that are get even more revelatory as you go through. But it's it's just asking those questions. That's one example. Another example is we we teach a technique called pre-mortem analysis. And pre-mortem analysis was was something that was developed by another amazing cognitive psychologist who we've had the pleasure to work with a lot, Dr. Gary Klein. And then the Army further evolved his method, and then we further evolved the, the Army's method. And pre-mortem analysis is, is really simple. We all know what a post-mortem is, right? Which is, you know, you 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 have a failure and you you examine it so that you can learn from the mistakes and not make the same mistakes again. And that's a good thing. And I encourage people to do that. But Gary's point was. Why wait? <laughs> Why wait till we've already till we've already lost the patient before we do before we do the 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 the, the autopsy? Why don't we start before we execute the plan? Why don't we spend some time imagining and it's in a structured way how the plan could fail and what the steps are that could lead to that failure? Because then we can adjust the plan if necessary to make it less likely that those steps that led to failure occur. And if we can't do that, at least we can have contingencies in place that we're going to use to mitigate the impact of these things so we never reach that failed state. So those are just two examples. There's so many more. There's, there's, uh, we, we, we have broadly three categories of tools that we work with. Analytical techniques. Um, so another example of an analytical technique is we have a tool called assumptions challenge that's designed to break a strategy or plan down into the assumptions that it's based on and then stress test those assumptions to make sure that they're really valid and if they're if they're if they're weak then to figure out how, again how to modify the plan proactively so that they're that doesn't rely on weak assumptions and if we can't do that again how to create options so that we can mitigate them if they fail and then we have a, another group of techniques called imaginative techniques pre-mortem is one um, you know, uh, another is is uh, is called what if or, or is called swan dive, which is a, a tool that's designed to unpack what what would happen if a potential future event occurred and what would be the steps cascading backwards that would lead to that. So you can kind of look at it in three dimensions. And then we have another final category is a group of tools called contrarian techniques that are designed to help us be that constructive contrarian. And includes tools like Devil's Troika, which is designed to, to help kind of look at plans from all sides and really kind of make sure they're as sound as they could be. It doesn't, it sounds like it might take a long time. It doesn't just takes, takes, you know, 90 minutes. And, um, and one of my favorites, The Enemy Within, which is a little fun, fun game we play to surface the things that organizations are doing to defeat themselves. 
so that they can stop doing them. Because Craig, something that I firmly believe is that if you study the history of business failures, you'll find that most companies die from self-inflicted wounds. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, Well, and I think it's such a powerful, so much, I've gotten so many positive uh, comments about that and love the what problem are we trying to solve? Because when you ask that, that can just put someone, just stop them in their tracks and go, yeah, that's a great, or, you know, what does success look like? And yeah, you think, question you number said, two is, is it the right problem? That then impacts a whole exactly. other conversation because often we find that we're, it's not, we're, we, the problem that we're trying to solve is not the problem that we're trying to, is, that we should be dealing with. Right. Yeah. Well, and uh, so I've got a, a great question here uh, from Susan who says that, you know, I really hate brainstorming, yet my organization just seems to be obsessed with doing it and feels like we're generating great ideas. So is that a red teaming, red team thinking strategy? And what are your thoughts on it? No, <laughs> that's a, um, that, that's what we call navel gazing. Um, no, I mean, you know, look, I mean, brainstorming is fine. I'm not, I don't want to dismiss brainstorming, but the point is, is that what we the tools that we teach are, are very structured because the problem as susan has seen is that if you just say well let's think about this let's ideate let's brainstorm it becomes an open-ended unbounded exercise and it gets in the way of making a decision today decisions need to be made rapidly and one thing that leaders need to understand craig is that the way that you make a decision today is not to spend days and weeks figuring out what the, the optimal decision is and, and then executing it and then going and playing golf. It's, yeah. to, it's to spend some time to understand the problem, to come up with the best option that you can right now, and to understand that you're going to have to adjust that as you move forward. So you, you, we talk about, one of the things that we teach our clients is that decision-making should be a practice, not a process. And, and what I mean by that is that a process is something that you do step one, step two, step three, step four, and then you're done. Processes can be very valuable. I mean, we teach our tools as processes, but, the, but we teach them as processes as training wheels so that you're learning how to use it. But once you, once you, once you understand how to use it, you can take the training wheels off and you just do it. Similarly, we think decision-making needs to be something that people are doing constantly, of, testing and evaluating their decisions because the world changes so rapidly now. So spending a huge amount of time brainstorming up front, that's fine. But then what, but by the time you execute your, the, the wonderful plan you brainstormed, most of what you were thinking about has been obviated by, by events. Look how fast things are changing right now in the world. We don't have time for that. We do have time for thinking though. So I don't want to say I'm, it, it's, it's, it's striking the right balance between thinking and acting. And mm -hmm. so there's a motto in special forces that, that we that we really believe in, which is, is fast, slow is fast. And, and what it means is that if you take a little time up front to think your way through, you'll execute more rapidly and you won't have to make as, 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 as many mistakes, you won't make as many mistakes and so you'll, you'll achieve your goals more rapidly. So mm -hmm. we definitely want to spend a little time up front, but not too much so that we're getting away and making a decision when the decision needs to be made. Love it, thank you, and and thanks as well, uh, shared uh, from many. Uh, Kevin wrote in and said, uh, 
want to go back to the to the lies that organizations tell. <laughs> He's been thinking about that for the <laughs> since you mentioned that. I hear and you, Kevin. Struggling, and struggling to figure out, okay, I wonder what lies our organizations tell. So said, I know this might be an unfair question. Like, any tips for how we can unearth those lies internally? Uh, thanks. It's an amazing question, and thanks you for for raising it. So, Kevin, here's what I recommend. Assemble your team and give everybody a three by five card and a pen, same pen. Tell them, I, you know, explain to me, talk to this guy. He said, every organization has a series of lies, tells itself. Made me curious. I want to know what lies we tell ourselves in this organization. Give everybody a couple minutes to think. Don't let them write yet. Let them think about the problem quietly. And then ask them to write their, their number one answer down in block letters. Then collect the cards, shuffle them, and deal them out to people. So people may end up with their own. They may end up with someone else's. Nobody will know. And then have everybody read the card that they have out. That'll be a very illuminating conversation, I promise you. That's awesome. And already big, well, big block letters. Thank you. <laughs> right. So that, and, and I think it is. That's such a really great, it's an incredibly powerful question. And then I also, and I love the process and the practice that goes with that. And I think that because people can think about it and then like, all right, well, how could we go about it? And if we threw it out to the room, you could get crickets. You, and what I love about what you're doing is saying, hey, let's engage everyone get everyone's unfiltered perspective on this and create a safe space because I love what you're sharing too, Bryce, is about by shifting around the cards, who knows who's I'm going to get. And now we can just sit with that and likely go, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I just said, a very thought-provoking conversation. A big part of what we do is creating the psychological safety that's necessary to, to have these honest sharings. You know, assumptions a lot of a lot of our techniques work this way we 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 do a thing called weighted anonymous feedback where we build a, a list of of things can be any anything well i'll give you an example uh with our tool assumptions challenge we come up with a list crowdsource from the team that's working on a list of what are the assumptions that underlie this strategy or plan I was working with a big sovereign wealth fund in asia several years ago taught them how to use this and to their senior leaders and, and we were practicing on a real investment target they were pretending, you know trying to decide whether or not they should acquire xyz corporation and they came up with a list of critical assumptions and then i said right now what we're going to do is we're going to vote on which of these assumptions we think are most likely to fail which are the weakest but we're not just going to raise our hands i'm going to give everybody there was there was like 50 assumptions they came up with so i'm going to give everybody 15 dot stickers and and here's the list and you can you can use distribute them however you want if you are really concerned about one assumption you can put all 15 stickers on that or you could vote for 15 different assumptions and so everybody did that and we tallied the results and one assumption got six times as many votes as everything else and it became a real discussion about, wow, this is a critical problem with this. And then it became a discussion about, should we even invest in this company because of this? And then it was like, yes, we should, but here's what we would need to ask them to do to mitigate this. 
and in this case the, the issue was this was a this was a uh, family owned corporation where the uh, owner was in his late 70s and had not identified a successor and that this was the, this was viewed as a potential point of failure for the company if he passed away and there wasn't somebody you know ready and waiting to take over so they made it they, you know the result was a condi the condition of of the investment would be to identify a successor and begin working with this sovereign wealth fund to groom that successor to take over the, the company at the appropriate time one of the managing directors of the sovereign wealth fund took me aside and said I have been staying up at night awake about this issue since I learned about our plan to invest in this company. But because our culture, our business culture, doesn't allow anyone to challenge something that comes from someone who's above us, this came from the very top of the house, um, I haven't said anything and I never would have. But now I can sleep tonight because without any risk to my career, I've been able to to express my concern about this, and we've acted on it. So that's 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 really important. And I and I and I want to go back to what Susan said. I hope you see Susan that these things these are not sitting around brainstorming. These are very structured techniques. <laughs> you're still thinking, but you're acting. Yeah, I love that, and it's so powerful in terms of. And I love that you use the word culture uh, to talk about it as as well, right? In terms of creating a culture and environment, and the psychological safety so critical. We've got less than ten minutes. I, I do have a question from Emmanuel. So um, he was wondering, do you have any advice for how to deal with stakeholders who can be impatient about you implementing the plan? If you need some time to make it successful. Any advice around how to deal with stakeholder concerns who may be pushy, <laughs> as in as in stakeholders who want a decision right right now type of thing? Yeah, well, they want I, you to get your plan in place and start going. So you need some time to get the plan up and get some results. So I again, you know, I, I think it's I think that it's important to to get the plan right, but that's that's that that's not something that should take months. Um, but I think it's important to have a conversation with those stakeholders. I would share. I would. I would share the 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 fast is it it it. So I think the exact quote, and you can look it up online. Uh, it's it the Navy SEALs in the U.S. use this as a mantra. Fast or, or slow is smooth, and smooth is fast. <laughs> slow is smooth, and smooth is fast. And and the point being that if you if you if you take some time to think it through up front. The execution will be so much smoother and that will be more rapid as a result so the net net you'll get the points on the board faster if you take that time up front but it's you know it's important to explain why because you know it's here's the thing here we go back to the what are the lies we tell ourselves mm. i should have said this when 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 uh, the question came about what's one of the most common lies one of the most common lies hear this from most of our clients is that we're really good at fighting fires and we're always fighting fires because we have to and i always push back on that and saying if you're always fighting fires because you have to then you're doing something else wrong that's putting you in a position where you're always having to fight fires and and, and and maybe the solution not to you know, I'm not saying let the fires burn it's not not what I'm advocating <laughs> but is to recognize why you're always fighting fires yeah. and 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 you know a lot of companies 
that I work with, they take pride in this. They're that we're always we're we're always running to the fire and putting out, but that's not that shouldn't be a point of pride in a company because the best companies aren't always fighting fires because they've they've taken a little bit more time up front so that they're not they're not burning the house down around themselves constantly. <laughs> well, something to and, think about. Well, and I just got a comment from Tara saying, "Wow, what a really that's given me a lot to think about in terms of the culture." in our organization and how that is uh, something that we almost, it's a daily mantra. So yep. thank you for raising that. And absolutely. And, and once again, which is what I love about you, your approach, the red team thinking, which is stepping back and going, okay, let's ask questions. Let's be strategic around this. Let's really start to tackle some of the assumptions. What are some of the things what are some of the other explicit or implicit messages that we may be uh, sending to ourselves and others through what we're doing or saying right now? So this has just been awesome. We're almost out of time. And so I want to, uh, and I've gotten so many great pieces. So thank you. Thank you. Really thought provoking. So any final words, thoughts, uh, advice for people as we close this? And again, thank you, Bryce. This is uh, I, I I knew it was going to be a lot of fun, and this even exceeded uh, my very high expectations for this afternoon. So, well, thank you, Craig. I, it, it's it's been a pleasure for me as well. Um, you know, my final word are, are just the words on the coffee cup: don't outsource thinking. That is the most important thing. And if you want to learn more about red team thinking, just come to our website, redteamthinking.com. If you want to hear more conversations about this, I have a podcast, The Thinking Leader. You can listen to it, Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to a podcast. And uh, love to continue the conversation with, with, with your listeners here. Um, we do open enrollment courses all the time. We do work with private clients. And it's easy to find us and, and happy to talk with anyone. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn at uh, just LinkedIn forward slash Bryce Hoffman too. That's amazing. And yes, I was, uh, the podcast is excellent and you have amazing guests. And I think Alan was guest number one. Uh, Alan was so, guest number one. And we're, 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 we're I'll, 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 I'll share something new. We're, we paused the podcast for a couple months because we're relaunching it now as both a, a, a YouTube channel and a podcast. And we're going to be having Alan on again soon. So that's amazing. Well, thank you so, so much, Bryce. Uh, I've gotten so many, yes, so many thank yous and really thought provoking and really appreciate your passion for this. And, and, and for me, uh, having the experience of both knowing you and then going through the red team thinking and, and, and that experience, which is really valuable. And, and for us, it, 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 prompts a space for us to think about our assumptions, how we think, how we relate, how we communicate, how we make decisions, and all of that just elevates our self-awareness, which then ultimately uh, changes our impact. So just uh, love your passion for that and uh, for everything you've shared today. It's just been an absolute joy. So uh, thanks, everybody. Absolute Thank pleasure. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me here today on Do Good to Lead Well. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at Craig Dowden or reach out via LinkedIn 
or email info at craigdowden.com. I look forward to meeting you here next week for another transformational episode.